You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Uh, but I think uh, the state is just trying to be proactive in a very um, liberal way uh, in terms of uh, protecting um, both uh, employer and uh, private citizen rights. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On today's show, Ben explains why the Elon Musk and Twitter dispute will be resolved by a special court in Delaware. I've got the story of Google updating their spam filters to please politicians. And later in the show, Brian Gant of Maryville University on how California's new privacy police could affect views on cybersecurity. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. All right, Ben, we've got some interesting stories this week. Why don't you start things off for us here? Sure. So my story concerns where and in which venue the Elon Musk Twitter dispute is going to be resolved. I realize hmm. that many people are not super interested in civil procedure, but I thought this is a good opportunity <laughs> to explain why so many important cases involving large corporations are decided in the great state of Delaware. Mm, so for the those blink of us, and you miss it state. Exactly. For those of us uh, who are not from Delaware, and that's that's most of us, we know it by the tiny stretch of, of I-95 between the Mid-Atlantic and, and the Northeast. Uh, what I uh, have discovered through my uh, crack research this morning is that over 1.8 million companies are headquartered in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, mm. if you've uh, ever been to Wilmington, Delaware, it has a nice little downtown, minor league baseball stadium. There is no way that it is actually the physical headquarters of 1.8 million corporations. So why are all these companies headquartered there? The answer is because of these special courts. They are called the Chancery Courts of Delaware, and they are experts at resolving disputes among large corporations. Uh, These are specialty courts that are what are called courts uh, courts in equity. So as uh, opposed to a court of law, which resolves a dispute really within the confines of the letter of the law, a court in equity has a little bit more flexibility and could be a little bit more creative in its resolution. Uh, hmm. They also have close to maybe more than 400 years of experience in adjudicating disputes between companies. Uh, so they are familiar with precedent. They are familiar with 
the customary legal framework that uh, involves these disputes. The reason companies decide to headquarter themselves in Delaware is that if they get sued, uh, which every company has to be worried about getting sued, they want to be sued in Delaware court. And if you are a Delaware corporation, uh, you can either be sued in the Delaware Chancery Court or you can ask to have the case removed to the Delaware Chancery Court, which will give your corporation more certainty. Lawyers uh, who are experts in the subject know how to uh, deal with the the six members of this Chancery Court. They are expertise. Uh, they are they are experts in in, in this area of the law. Uh, so I think a lot of people wonder why so many corporations are headquartered in Delaware. And I thought this Elon Musk Twitter dispute is the perfect opportunity to explain uh, the the nature of that uh, kind of bizarre phenomenon. Now, why has Delaware cornered the market on this? Is it, and, and what's in it for them as a state? That is a great question. Uh, so what's in it for them as a state is they get all of the tax revenue uh, that comes with 1.8 million corporations being headquartered in the state of Delaware. It means that they can have, I believe it's either no sales tax or an extremely low sales tax. Uh, yeah. Because since corporations want to be headquartered there, even though the corporate tax rate is relatively low, just based on volume, they are collecting billions of dollars in tax revenue. Um, so they can fund the, the things that make Delaware great. You know, the the beach service, the, the beach buses in Rehoboth Beach, and maybe the school districts if, if they're feeling nice uh, and if the <laughs> kids in Delaware are lucky. Uh, but that that's what's in it for Delaware. In terms of the history, I mean, it's really just an accident of, of history. Only three or four states in the country have these chancery courts, and it's just kind of become customary as our common law has developed over the past 400 years that these cases get heard specifically in Delaware. Uh, and now it's kind of just a niche part of the state. Uh, people who aren't involved in large corporate litigation just have no idea how important the state of Delaware is uh, to our legal landscape. And the precedent that comes from the Delaware Chancery Court for some companies is more important than any precedent that they get from the Supreme Court because they are so narrowly focused on corporate disputes uh, in equity. Uh, so it has such incredibly strong uh, precedential value. You know, this is, I have to admit, I'm, I'm pretty much completely ignorant when it comes to this. I mean, obviously I knew that you know, Delaware was, you know, where all the credit card companies are and all that sort of thing. You know, there's, everybody knows that. But, right. so how does this play out in terms of, you know, states' rights versus federal rights? I mean, you you said in your, in your explanation uh, that you have these chancery courts versus courts of law. Uh, I guess I'd never considered that there was an alternative to courts of law. <laughs> Do all the other states just kind of go along with this? Well, they... Yes. I mean, they they are beholden to the holdings of the Chancery Court in Delaware because that's where these disputes are resolved. And not to get into the intricacies of civil procedure, um, but as a defendant, so if you're a defendant corporation, you're headquartered in Delaware, then the venue for that case based on personal jurisdiction is going to be the state of Delaware. But obviously the tangible effect of that is that's a decision that's going to be applicable across the country. I think it's more just a matter of custom that in the corporate world, decisions of the Chancery Court in Delaware 
carry enough weight that it's just, it's not really a point of question or dispute that companies are going to follow the decisions of these courts. Once we decided that this was going to be the venue for these disputes, then I think all parties kind of recognize that whatever the Delaware Delaware Chancery Court says, that is the venue uh, for making these decisions. And unless there's some type of really novel case that invokes federal constitutional issues, uh, and most corporate disputes don't involve federal issues or constitutional issues, then there's no reason for any federal court, specifically the Supreme Court, to question the institutional expertise of this chancery court who's been doing this for 400 years. So I think it's just kind of a a matter of custom. Uh, It's just bizarre. I mean, I imagine explaining it to somebody who landed on an alien spaceship that, you know, (laughs) this billion-dollar dispute, multi-billion-dollar dispute, which will decide whether Elon Musk has to pay $44 billion to Twitter uh, to go through with the purchase, whether you think he actually ever intended to go through that purchase or not is a different question. That's always going to be resolved in this tiny state carved off the uh, Atlantic coast in a tiny court in the small city of Dover, Delaware. Uh, I just It's just a kind of bizarre quirk of our system, but it's something that I think a lot of people kind of, as you said, you know that credit card companies are headquartered in Delaware, um, but people don't really know why businesses decide to be incorporated there. Um, sometimes they'll be incorporated in, in multiple states to kind of um, not put all their eggs in one basket. Uh, so if they get sued, they can uh, try and decide the best venue for their purposes. But most corporations choose the Delaware venue because the chancery courts are seen as fair-minded. Uh, they are willing to look, as I said, look beyond the letter of the law to try and come up with creative solutions to complex problems. Uh, it's kind of like our own personal mediator. Um, the Delaware Chancery Court is is the nation's uh, therapist slash uh, mediator for these large uh, corporate disputes. So it's just a kind of a weird accident of, of history. Um, but I thought, you know, now that we're going to have a probably one of the most widely tracked uh, legal cases in the tech world, possibly ever. Uh, it's interesting to step back and do a background on why um, six people, one of six people in a funny uniform in uh, the smallest geographical state or the second smallest geographical state um, will decide a dispute that's uh, close to $50 billion. It's interesting, wow. at least to me. I know some of you are probably bored by civil procedure, but <laughs> I promise I'll only talk about this once. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, do they find themselves slammed with cases just because there's so many companies there? Yes, um, they they are. So there's six. Uh, there's a chief judge of the Chancery Court, and that person uh, assigns a court uh, assigns each case to one of six other judges. They have a very large caseload. Not all corporate disputes make it into one of these courts, um, and not all disputes that ostensibly are going to be brought in front of the Chancery Court actually make it to adjudication. Sometimes they're settled out of court, or sometimes there's a motion for summary judgment where you get the judge to decide the merits of the case before there's actually a hearing on the record. Um, So, yes, they have a, a large caseload, but so far it's been manageable. Um, from what I can tell, I mean, there's no discussion about expanding the number of judges uh, on this court, and hmm. I think they take their responsibility very seriously, and their workload reflects that responsibility. 
I'm just imagining the the Chancery Court of Delaware uh, going up against the Supreme Court in some kind of softball league. Yeah, it's it sounds like a great Disney movie uh, that they made for adults, where it's the ultimate David versus Goliath, uh, the Delaware Chancery Court and the Supreme Court. Yeah, you know, given the gerontocracy of the Supreme Court, I'm not sure that the Delaware Chancery Court would fare so poorly in a in a softball game. <laughs> right, right. Not knowing That's how anything we about the, the big issues. <laughs> yeah, not not that I know anything about the uh, physical capabilities or really even the uh, age breakdown of the judges on the Delaware Chancery Court. <laughs> um, but yeah, that would be fun to see that happen. <laughs> All right. Well, it's uh, an interesting little bit of uh, background there. Hopefully this is a very special uh, episode for those of uh, our listeners from the great state of Delaware. No, it's good. It's good. Um, I'm planning on vacationing in Delaware later this summer. So as you said, they have lovely beaches and uh, people there are are very nice. And also uh, tax-free liquor stores. So there you go. And believe it or not, (laughs) I am also going to be vacationing in Delaware. And we were not paid to say this. So uh, (laughs) they really do have great beaches. And yeah, tax-free liquor. You can't beat that. No, no. All right. Well, we will have a link to uh, a story from the New York Times uh, on this topic uh, covering the Elon Musk uh, Twitter uh, debacle. Can I call it a debacle? Yeah, we can definitely <laughs> call it a debacle. That might okay. be too too uh, moderate of a word to describe what's going on. All right. Well, it's a family show, so we'll leave it there. Uh <laughs> My story this week comes from Bloomberg. Uh, this is an article written by uh, Max Chafkin, uh, and it's titled, Google is going to let politicians spam your inbox. Um, ben, I have to say, uh, something something that really grinds my gears is oh. that politicians yes. always carve themselves out of everything, right? Like, like uh, the do not call list except for politicians, yep. right? <laughs> we I make the think, rules. Yeah, and the rules don't apply to us. Yep. Right, right. I, I think uh, there, there ought to be a law, Ben. There ought to be a, a let's go call a constitutional convention. We need to fix this Yeah, that's this what right we have away. to do because uh, <laughs> it's not like the lawmakers are ever going to do it for us. So, yeah. Right, right. So this article is about uh, Google's parent company, Alphabet, which evidently is – trying to get ahead of uh, potential legislation that's that's coming along uh, that could uh, affect how they run their spam filters. And evidently, uh, Google has been accused through their Gmail product of disproportionately filtering uh, right-wing political speech or political, I guess, ads, promotions, whatever you Messaging, want to call it. Messaging, I guess, yeah. Mess- emails, yeah. Uh, disproportionately placing those into spam filters. That right-wing stuff ends up in spam filters more than left-wing stuff. First of all, uh, I guess I I was skeptical about that when I first heard it because uh, it is a common, uh, I don't know, cry in social media circles, certainly, for uh, right-wing folks to say that they're being uh, censored and and so on, but the facts don't align with that. Right. Uh, but in this in this case, they actually do. Uh, there is a study uh, that they uh, they reference in this article that shows that sure enough, uh, Gmail does filter more right-wing stuff to the spam folder than it does left-wing stuff. Uh, and interestingly, some of the other email providers, uh, I believe they they reference Outlook and Yahoo Mail, do the opposite. Hmm. Interesting. Which, uh, 
Yeah, which is interesting. Uh, they try, they they speculate that that may be because um, Gmail in general has a younger user base than uh, Outlook and Yahoo do. Um, and so if their users are telling them, this is spam, this is spam, this is spam, um, that the younger users may have more of a liberal bias than the older ones would. And so their algorithms are being fed this information that says, hey, this is spam. Uh, and that right-wing messages might be getting that more than left-wing and for the younger honest, users. And let's be honest, you and I spend much of our day marking this is spam on political fundraising emails. <laughs> <laughs> At least I do. I'll speak for myself. Okay. Well, you know, I find that uh, this this stuff, um, I see very little spam. Uh, and I have to uh, credit um, a friend of mine who goes by the name Ray Redacted on uh, Twitter, well-known mm-hmm. uh, information security guy. Uh, he unlocked a, a little secret uh, trick for me, and that is create a folder in your email account that filters for the word unsubscribe. Funny story about that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I saw the same life hack. I yeah. did that. Uh, then one time I was supposed to make plans with my in-laws, and uh-huh. there was a whole Facebook message exchange that I was not privy to because there was an uns- there was the word unsubscribed was mentioned somewhere in that email exchange. Um, yeah. so just a little warning shot, but generally that is a that is a very strong practice. Yes, yes. Well, with great power comes great responsibility. So exactly. use that at your as, at your own risk, but I've found that it really helps clear out my inbox uh, and then I just have to take the time to, you know, visit it every now and then or clear it out or whatever. <laughs> so, um but uh, what's interesting, so getting back to this article, um, the, it, it seems as though uh, there is some legislation that uh, this article says really has no chance of passing, uh, some bipartisan legislation, um, but that Google is sort of trying to get ahead of this, thinking that uh, should Republicans take control of Congress, that they may come after them more aggressively once they have that power, and so Google is basically saying during political season, we're going to dial back the amount of spam filtering we do with political messaging. What do you make of this, Ben? So a couple of important things to note here. The first is the market share. Uh, Google has 1.5 billion monthly users. That's a rather large uh, proportion of people on planet Earth. So I think this policy carries extra weight just because of so many of us use Gmail as an email platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is, I think from a 30,000-foot perspective, uh, all political fundraising emails, in my mind these days, are very spammy. I mean, it's, Ben, I need your help to defeat so-and-so, chip in an extra 5 or $10 today. You know, today, right, and right, you right. will get a special red carpet status to the next such and such rally. Mm-hmm. I don't know why conservative messages uh, are more prone to get caught up in the spam filter. My educated guess is that a lot of the conservative ecosystem revolves around President Trump and his fundraising organization, mm-hmm. and they have a lot of promotions that strike me as kind of scammy, like um, be part of the Super MAGA Patriot Club 
um, be like a diamond gold member and you'll win a, you know, all expenses paid trip to have dinner with Donald Trump Jr. in Las Vegas or whatever. Right. Um, in a world where so many emails qualify as spam, maybe that's something that distinguishes itself in terms of whatever algorithm Gmail uses to categorize something as spam. The other solution, mm-hmm. which I think is uh, maybe a little bit more innocuous, is the one that you presented, which with a younger base of users, um, people are just declaring more Republican, conservative fundraising emails as spam, and Google starts to learn to put those uh, in the spam folder. Mm-hmm. What's weird about this entire story to me is that Google is purposefully making the user experience worse, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> in my view, uh, to head off a potential political dispute. And I understand it from their perspective. Republicans are very likely to gain control of Congress, and Google does not want to be regulated by the federal government. Um through Congress. But by doing this, I mean, I would guess that maybe 90, 95% of users would prefer to have more political fundraising emails qualify as spam rather than fewer. Uh, So it's just, to me, kind of a bizarre situation we're in where trying to head off a political controversy supersedes the interests of the 1.7 billion people who use the platform. Um, it just mm-hmm. kind of makes the whole thing a little bit curious. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's just yucky, and the whole thing's just yucky, you know. Uh, and, and it gets back to what I said at the outset. You know, th- this is, um, in a way, the politicians, you know, carving stuff out for themselves. In this case, it's the politicians, you know, complaining using their threat of, uh, you know, pro- of of implementing regulation on Google. Uh, as a way to get their messaging through. Yeah, I mean, in that perspective, it's kind of (laughs) corrupt. The fact that, like, it's really only protecting the very narrow interests of politicians and political fundraisers. Mm -hmm. uh, And they are getting their way from a policy perspective against what I guess, I don't have hard data on this, but I, I would guess is the preference of the vast majority of users who would rather get no fundraising emails. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, even threatening to have this carve out for themselves, uh, it is really Congress removing them, kind of inserting themselves into the arena to assert their own interests against the interests of the vast majority of consumers. Now, Google, you know, does not have to go along with this. And I think the fact that they are says volumes about how worried they are about being regulated and mm-hmm. that they are still. Um, and it, to a rather large extent, beholden to the whims of of politicians. Um, they yeah. really worry about po- what politicians are going to do and, and say to them. Um, and that creates this kind of uh, power dynamic that is generally uh, not advantageous for people like uh, you and me. Yeah. Well, we are hot and heavy into, uh, some of my friends call it silly season, <laughs> election season, uh, here in, in our locality. I was driving by one of the schools uh, recently, and the, the entrance to the school, which is where we have our elections, uh, was just covered with political signs, just comically so. Oh, yeah, um, and I get phone calls from, you know, this is so-and-so from such-and-such committee. Uh, yeah. It's It gets overwhelming. I wish there were a- 
I wish there were a spam filter for uh, sign waivers. Oh <laughs> right? my like gosh. A, like yes. a real world spam filter for sign waivers. Because <laughs> I, I think they're dangerous. Just have them blotted the out. Have the your road. glasses blot them out uh, when they're yeah, standing right. at the side yeah. of the road. Yeah. Right. Maybe if we get, uh, when we get our, uh, our, Augmented reality glasses, they'll be able to automatically paint out, you know, sign waivers in real time. Now, that there's is a, a, there's billion, a million dollar idea. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> get on that. Don't get too big for uh, for this little podcast because you, yeah. you might make millions. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. Well, we will have links to uh, all of our stories in the show notes. And of course, we would love to hear from you. If you have a story that you would like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. And I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Brian Gant. He is uh, from Maryville University. Uh, And we were talking about how some of California's privacy regulations uh, could affect views on cybersecurity. Here's my conversation with Dr. Brian Gant. California seems to always uh, kind of be the leader uh, in terms of, uh, you know, going um, um, after certain uh, rights to protect, you know, households or or data or, or privacy we had the investigation, you know, with the with the iPhone. Uh, I forget uh, what year it was, and between Apple and, and whether or not privacy was being invoked about going through, uh, you know, the uh, the lock code and getting into that phone. I think that just kind of steamrolled into uh, they where they wanted to, to create this uh, protection law, uh, the CCPA, to uh, basically protect the the data privacy of, uh, of individuals and. Um, basically talk about how they can uh, they don't have to necessarily share their information within their household um, with a particular consumer. I think from a a law enforcement perspective, you know, we always look at exigent circumstances and whether or not, you know, information, uh, private information will uh, help out the public or uh, help out uh, uh, in terms of uh, stopping loss of life or, or things of that nature. Uh, but I think uh, the state is just trying to be proactive in a very um, liberal way uh, in terms of uh, protecting um, both uh, employer and uh, private citizen rights. Well, let's talk about the Privacy Protection Agency itself. I mean, what, what is your understanding of what this agency's charge is? What, what are they responsible for doing? My understanding is that they're, they're responsible just from a 
governance perspective to make sure uh, individuals are not being abused, you know, whether that uh, be from an employee, employer standpoint or from a, a criminal justice law enforcement uh, standpoint as well. And, and to what degree will their reach extend beyond California's borders? Uh, that I'm not aware of. Um, and to be quite honest, I don't believe uh, their reach can extend beyond their borders. I'm not uh, privy to, uh, I haven't read in detail, you know, their um, the breakdown of their constitution or, or, or bylaws. But, you know, as a, uh, a state entity, I'm pretty sure that um, they have to uh, stay within the boundaries of, of the California. And in terms of, you know, for consumers within California itself, uh, what sort of uh, privacy uh, enhancements could they expect here? I mean, what what sort of things could they come to the agency to uh, to assist them with? Uh, you know, uh, privacy laws um, affect so many different avenues, right? You know, anything dealing with marketing, sales, uh, purchasing, um, anything dealing with security or information technology, um, the, all of those things kind of follow within the umbrella of privacy and, and, and uh, big data. So a con- consumer, if they truly had a concern that this particular privacy act was violated, um, all of those things kind of fall within that within that jurisdiction. You know, you mentioned that, that California really tends to take the lead on these sorts of things. Do you expect that this is something we're going to see rolling across the nation, you know, state by state or with the federal government not really being able to get much done? uh, Do you expect that this is something we'll see spreading across the nation? I do expect a few other states uh, kind of to follow suit. I think they're kind of giving uh, California a little leeway to see how things kind of play out. But, you know, typically um, states like uh, Washington, uh, some of your uh, northeastern states uh, and also maybe and maybe some of your midwestern states like Illinois typically kind of follow uh, uh, lock and step um, with California and some of their uh, some of their laws. Um, so I can definitely see this expanding uh, out a little bit with, of course, you know, little tweaks here and there um, for uh, for your own perspective state. Has there been much pushback on this? I mean, you know, California overall, I think, as you mentioned, you know, tends to lead in sort of a, a liberal way. But I could imagine criticism uh, from folks who uh, might see this as being a bit of an overreach, pro-business people who, you know, don't want to have too many regulations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and that's where I think um, that's why I said I, I don't I don't necessarily think. Um, this will be something that, uh, that that catches fire and that a lot of the, you know, the majority of the states will be adopting. Um, you have some some states who are very, very conservative, uh, uh, some states who are, are, are very, very pro-law uh, uh, pro, pro law enforcement. Um, we have a lot of the uh, events, some of the tragic events that are happening around us right now. And uh, they can speak to specific use, use cases where um, uh, private private data um, on, a, on a particular individual has helped uh, uh, intimately with a particular case, as an example, and showing how, you know, uh, looking at somebody's online footprint, as an example, has uh, allowed, you know, someone to forecast uh, something that could could have possibly tragically happened, you know, whether it, it be the, you know, domestic you know, terrorism or what have you. And so, you know, it's a gray area, obviously, uh, California has chose to uh, err on the side of the uh, of the uh, private citizen, which is not surprising at all. 
You know, I, I'm curious from your point of view as as a professor, uh, as you're working with your students, um, what part does privacy play in you know the lessons that you're teaching them about about cybersecurity, you know, computer science, all those kinds of things? What place does it take? Privacy plays a big role, you know, and and I, I use privacy in a variety of different settings, um, whether it's talking about um, you know cyber or criminal law. Or, or whether it's talking about mobile security, you know, uh, uh, things of that nature. Um, and I try to explain to them that there is, there is no um, uh, one answer to, to how you should view privacy. Privacy is a is a personal thing. Um, now, what you do have to think about and what you do have to discuss is if you work for a private organization, you have to decide on whether or not um, just where the line is drawn with your privacy. If that organization issues you a BYOD, you know, a take-home cell phone device, um, and uh, instead of you use instead of using your own personal device, um, you have to be okay with that, all right. Or if you want to use your personal device for you know work, email, and things of that nature, you have to be okay with that. Is it supposed to be segmented off? Yes, it's supposed to be. Can things happen to where maybe some data? accidentally spills over into a section of the phone, which is controlled by the corporation? Absolutely. And so these are things that you have to consider before you uh, you make those decisions to, to sign on the dotted line, whether it be for a federal agency or private organization. And uh, you have to be you have to be OK with that. And in your experience, I mean, for again, you know, thinking of your students, the the college age generation who's coming up today, what is their in your experience, what is their attitude towards privacy? And does it differ from, you know, older folks like me? You know, Dave, it's kind of surprising. Um, I think one would think that a, a student um, in this day and age would be uh, all for privacy, right? All for privacy, all for a big brother, not overreaching and and uh, not over overlooking. Um, but su- surprisingly, surprisingly, uh, most of my students um, are very practical in understanding um, uh, the way things are these days. They're very uh, realistic in understanding that um, even when you say your Instagram uh, is in private mode, um, once you put your information on the Internet, there is no such thing as uh, privacy, right? Cell phones, uh, uh, third-party adware, you know, when you discuss going to Home Depot, talking to your mother, and all of a sudden ads start popping up on your phone when you get off. You know, all of these things try to uh, emulate behavior and, and buying patterns, and, and, and it's all all around us. And so I think they're very, very, uh, they have a very, very practical sense about it, um, more so than what you probably would think. Are you optimistic, you know, for our future here as, as you think about some of the things that are being put in place? You know, we're, we have, you know, California putting this agency in place and, and you know, you're working with your students every day. Do, do you feel as though we're heading in the right direction? You know, I, I do. Um, I do feel as though um, there are enough um, agencies and groups out there to where, um, you know, we won't, and I'll show my age here, we won't turn into the movie enemy of the state, right? <laughs> Um, we won't have overarching um, satellites watching um, every move that we do, and we will have you know some form of privacy. But we also are um, in, embracing you know of technology and efficiency, and um, doing things in a in a in a uh, 
a manner um, that will uh, help us out, you know, as we move as we move forward in, in so many different industries and so many different veins. And so I'm hopeful um, that we can keep uh, a steady pace and not necessarily alienate uh, the trust of, uh, you know, citizens to where uh, you get to the point where, um, you know, technology is is viewed as, you know, the big bad wolf instead of something that is here to assist and help help out. What do you think? Really interesting conversation. I mean, the most important question that you ask is, is this something that's going to filter into other states? Uh, As he mentioned, California is always kind of the leader in these types of efforts, whether Mm -hmm. it's CCPA itself or whether it's the kind of tech police that uh, he's referencing in this interview. And sometimes that does filter down to other states. Oftentimes it doesn't. I think there's something unique about California's political culture, uh, the way its legislature works, and the way all these companies are Silicon Valley companies that makes California unique. Uh, And I just don't think there's going to be a desire in many other states to have this type of uh, oversight body, Um, just because I think uh, it could be an invasion on individual liberties, uh, even an ostensible effort to protect personal privacy, Um, And also, it might eliminate some of the conveniences that people say they don't like about the internet or online interactions, um, Mm. but that they actually like and and value. Yeah. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Dr. Brian Gant. Uh, He is from Maryville University. We do appreciate him taking the time. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.